0: Welcome to What Were You Thinking. I'm Laura Round and I'm joined by Baroness Sally Morgan. She worked in Ten Downing Street for Tony Blair for eight whole years starting off as his political secretary. She joined the House of Lords in 2001 and there isn't much she hasn't done. She was Minister for Women and Equalities, a chair of Ofsted, was on the Olympics Delivery Authority and is now Master of Fitzwilliam College in Cambridge. We talk about the Iraq vote, Sinn Féin coming to number 10 for Peace Talks, the path to civil partnerships and the power of Tessa Jowell in getting the Olympics to the UK. This podcast is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. You can join the Big Tent as a friend to access many exclusive benefits, such as intimate events with leaders from politics, business, tech and arts, Just use the code PODCAST at the checkout to receive three whole months for free as a Pay Monthly member. It is pretty good value. Just go to BigTent.org.uk for full details. Well, Baroness Morgan, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? Uh, And it's great to have you on in particular because you are a trustee of a Big Tent Ideas Foundation. So... Um, there's obviously a special connection there as this podcast is in partnership with the Big Tent. Um, to start off, I thought I'd go straight in with one of my regular questions, which is to find out what person, or you know, if you have to pick one, or it might be more than one, had an impact on your thinking and potentially even your politics.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to have two people. One is definitely fits into your category. And the other is the person who's kept me sane, I think. So the first one is, it's Neil Kinnock for two reasons. And he might be quite surprised to hear this. But the first one is, um, I was was a teacher, I wasn't involved in particularly heavily involved in politics. And I wasn't particularly heavily involved in politics at university. Um, I was more concerned about education and always had been. And I heard Neil make that speech about the first Kinnock in a generation that then joe biden of course took and um and I, it really rang true to me because in a sense it's what it what it's what gets me up in the morning in terms of being interested in the power of education to change lives and and very keen still to open those opportunities to to other people and i've really been doing that for for much of my life one way or another i think um, and the second one, which is the cheat one, oh, sorry, there was an additional pick to Neil actually, because the other thing was that I heard that first Labour Party speech when he took on militant in Liverpool. Um, mm. And for me, that was incredibly powerful because. It was absolutely, it was absolutely the thing that made me start to work for the Labour Party. And I was supposed to be going to work for the Labour Party for a year, it's a very long time ago. Um, but it was actually to deal with militant in the Labour Party, because I'm originally from Liverpool. Militant, of course, were Liverpool. and I wasn't really, I wasn't scared of them. They thought you should be scared of them. Um, I wasn't, but I really wanted them out of the Labour Party because I hate extremist politics. Always have done. It's one of the reasons I'm involved in Big Tent, I guess. So, um, so that was a real... was a real switch on for me and then the first time I did anything where I wasn't actually then working for the Labour Party but I first was surrounded by a group of them in a very menacing way who threatened to essentially said something charming like we're going to give you a nervous breakdown and I just thought you absolutely are not you know I'm not having this and so it was a very both listening to Neil and then meeting a group of them for the first time and it was a sort of I mean a wild and wacky period I used to go up to these student labor clubs in liverpool and there was always somebody strange in the room when i was going through and saying are you eligible it was you know it was a it was a sort of very very detailed cleaning out of the labor party and i can remember going to one fe college in liverpool and looking around and thinking the priest is here who is why is the priest in here while i'm going through the labor club and it turned out he was the representative of the tendency in that college so i mean it was a real mafia Period in Liverpool, um, but Neil was the one who who woke me up to that. My second cheat, little extra person, uh, not little, is my husband, who John, who's kind of kept me going through many years in many in many many strange strange and unplanned parts of my career. Um, but it's been really important all the way through. So so that's that's my little cheat cheat of an extra person.
0: I mean, sanity is not to be underestimated, I think, especially this year,
1: (laughs) staying sane. Exactly, uh... exactly, yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And, um, I mean, this is a very personal and pertinent question, really, but just out of pure curiosity, did you know him before, um, had you met him before working in number 10? Oh, yeah,
1: I met him at university, I met him at university, so he he has sort of uh, basically always said oh well yeah if you want why don't you have a go you know i mean it's uh, i have I, I quite often do those speakers for school sessions where i yes. always go and say talk to go, let let me have a group of year 11 girls and i essentially say to them say yes you know have a go you can usually you, you, you can usually make it work um and uh and john's been very good at, 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 at playing that role with me i think of saying yes well why not yes why not that is that's
0: great. That is um that that's uh that's wonderful. That is a very, very good trait to have in a in a husband for sure. And uh I, I asked about number 10 because I know you've you have done a huge uh number of things throughout yeah. your career, but I i can only imagine
1: yes that was eight years, it was hard. Yeah. yeah. Number yeah.
0: 10 must have been perhaps yeah. the most frantic. <laughs> yes,
1: definitely. And I have and and with young children actually, so yes, it was gosh, been, it was it was very yeah. very busy. Mm. So let's just
0: start off with the Big Ten Ideas Festival. Because yeah. you, you already sort of referenced it by saying, you know, you don't like extreme politics, never have done, and that is probably one of the key reasons you got involved. Yeah. Um, why is the Big Ten Ideas Festival important to you? What uh, How would you describe its role and mm-hmm. sort of mission? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think when, it first went, when I first um, talked to George about it, it was a period when I think, certainly in the Labour Party, I felt not any longer. I mean, I still was in the Labour Party, but it was it had become a very different, the leadership I had very little connection with. Um, and I was missing, felt, I felt almost on a personal level, and I knew for many friends and colleagues and ex-colleagues I had, they'd lost the, the space to actually have the kind of conversations about significant challenges and, ideas and exchange of ideas to, to move things forward the almost the stuff that used to happen the fringe meetings at like a party conferences i can remember that i mean i've been for many years but you know a decade ago to de- i don't know they used to be great really interesting fringe meetings and it, it sort of didn't really matter which party conference you were at because you always met people who were interesting you had great debates but it wasn't unpleasant and it was open and um and for me, that was the space that, that that Big Tent stepped into, which was the ability to put people together of different parties and non, um, and people who were starting to do things and move things forward, um, often in quite small ways, but significant that we could learn from and try and put them together to have conversations. And so the festival idea was, was, was really important. I mean, I think as time goes on, it'll evolve because Politics is 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 less gossipy in that way than it was. There's more opportunities, I think, to 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 talk and to to work together. Although there's a lot more still to do, um, but I, so I think I think we are interested as, as as a group in how can we how can we try and take that to areas that I mean the sort of you know the, the less popular areas, the more left behind areas, the more marginal areas where there are going to be great people trying to get things done and moving. Can we can we take our idea and do a smaller version around the country, I think would be really would be really exciting. So that's what we that's what we hope to do next.
0: Yeah, that is exciting. And I, I agree with you. And I remember it being described quite early on as sort of like the ideal party conferences yes yes all the yes. all the fun bits of it yes and, uh, yes
1: yes and the sun was shining usually so that all helps yeah <laughs> actually you literally saw people you hadn't seen for a while which is kind of what used to happen at one time at the party conference I, and it was lovely to see them and then you'd have a cup of tea and it was and then you'd really talk um and i found and it's certainly for a while i mean particularly i think bluntly for me in the in part of the corbyn period it was just really great to be able to see people and have much more open conversations it was really important but it remains really important because we've there's too much shouting at each other there's too much shouting down social media there's too much unpleasantness but <clears throat> it's actually it alienates a lot of people <clears throat> so i think there's yeah. real scope for, for trying to have i don't like the word civilized particularly but you know i mean i mean proper conversations where you can you can challenge each other but not in a way that's scoring points or being unpleasant is constructive um, yeah. So you know, I think that's that's that space is is still really important to to be part of.
0: Yeah. No. Definitely. The highlights the uh, how you know people can have yes. um, uh, discussions and conversations about things yeah. coming from very different yeah. Uh, standpoints. Yeah. No. I totally agree. Um. So um, I am very interested in hearing about what it was like inside blair's government mm. in number 10
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, you spent
1: eight years really eight
0: mm. eight years that mm. is a very very <laughs> long, long time <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very long time and um one of the roles you did was political secretary mm-hmm. which i think is a very fascinating mm-hmm. job in number 10 and um maybe for the listeners if you mm. could Describe and explain what that role is, because it still obviously exists.
1: Yes, it exists. Um, it exists. Whoever is in power, it, it it exists, I think, and it sort of predates special advisors, really, and is a more fixed. It's an, almost a more fixed role and purpose, I think, than special advisors, and it's essentially there to be the liaison role between the prime minister, in his or her role as as leading a government, and his or her, her his or her role leading a party. So, it's the liaison point really that feeds the politics both ways between the parliamentary party, between local government. I mean, the Labour Party uh, period I was involved in, part of my office dealt with obviously trade unions, which were significant to us. But, um, but the Labour Party, in our, in our case, the Labour Party apparatus members and so on. Um, and I, it's exactly the same whichever party is in power, really. I mean, it might be. The people may be different, but probably the role is 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 really similar and and very important. And it is to, to to make sure that that remains part of the diary, the thinking, the connection. Um, and partly, you're explaining what the prime minister is thinking to those people as well. So it's very much a two-way. It's very much a two-way process. Um, and I had a really good, I had a really good team actually. So between us, we you know we covered. Uh, quite a large range if you like of the Labour Party and beyond really what was
0: it like at the time because obviously at the, the last sort of four was, years has been very turbulent
1: for a yes time, I mean I, with... I found it fascinating watching the last four years I have to say I'm sure I couldn't have done eight years if essentially although it was incredibly pressured it was also a really positive experience, really. So I was exhausted by the time I finished and I took the decision to to leave in 2005 because I knew I was sort of reaching that point where if somebody said to me, how are you? It was my job to say to people, how are you? You know, To the cabinet of the business. And then one day I just thought, actually, I don't really want to know how you are anymore because actually somebody ought to ask me how I am. And and I just thought, time to go, time to stop. Um, But we were... um, we were a team that got on really well. And I think without that, and I think we were really clear about our respective roles and we weren't, we weren't all the same. We, d- we weren't, we all got on well, we didn't go in as a group of friends in any way. And I think that's probably a good thing really. Um, and so although we all of course, broadly, agreed with the the overall direction of the government we certainly brought to any conversation different angles and different and different Mm. issues and different and also were able we'd we'd nearly all worked I mean I'd done two years for Tony in opposition and I think most of most of the inner group had if you like so I think when you come in like that and you've worked for somebody in opposition it does allow you to still speak truth to power albeit appropriately and behind closed doors but just say hang on a second you know we really do have to think this through properly um and i think tony rather liked having a group of people doing that who who were pushing in different directions particularly i think about the period of public service reforms we weren't all pushing this. you know we were coming with different angles um, and obviously part of mine was you know can we get labour mps to support this but but he liked having that challenge really. And then sometimes they say, right, get, you know, a lot of you are useless. I'll have to make my mind that won't tell you, know." but actually he, he liked that. He liked having um, people people sort of arguing so that he could then reflect on it and, and reach the decision. But we were also very mutually supportive of each other. And I think without that, I, I mean, I don't know how they've coped in re- what I hear and read about, you know, who knows how much of it's true. We could never have got through in that situation. So I think, Mm-hmm. There's still people who, um, you know, if something was going wrong, I think we'd all still be there for each other because I think when you've gone through really tough, intense periods, it 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 either makes you become a very strong unit or probably tears you apart. Um, so I think I think for us, we 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 really did support each other, and that wasn't just the sort of political people, if you like. That was it was a very strong team with the civil servant in there as well. Um, and again, I mean, I you know I read all this stuff about what happened to Dominic Cummings, but actually, I don't think. I mean, I, you know, when I was there, one of the people I worked with for quite a long time was Jeremy Hayward, who sadly has died. And you know, Jeremy and I knew exactly that our roles were complementary. Um, you know, we knew exactly where the boundaries were, but we were both in crucial conversations about about policy issues that had political angles, but. He was bringing his view and i was bringing my view and you know literally if we were trying to get something through cabinet he would be talking to the perm sex and i'd be talking to the cabinet you know so actually it it, it was very clear um where we were both coming from and 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 i absolutely considered the senior civil servants part of the same team you know because we just we knew what we were there for um and obviously i was there for iraq which was a very very difficult period and you know the senior it was the senior the team who were working on that were just amazing and um i, I yeah i've got very high respect for 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 the people i worked with of, of what whether they were there as special advisors political office or, or civil servants and some really great young civil servants as well we were we were very keen to try and find a sort of bright sparks who had amazing energy and we were very fortunate we did find them and and know I think it was a very strong and and vibrant team really.
0: Yeah and my understanding is that quite a lot of them have remained in the civil service and are Mm in quite (laughs) senior positions. Yes I see them sometimes think oh gosh what's happened to you then? (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine yeah and I mean I don't know if this is true but it's often framed in the media as as quite Mm -hmm. adversarial between politics team and the civil service team So it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts as to you know there's always going to be tension between the two but how from what you witnessed how do you overcome that tension and how do
1: you i honestly don't think there was tension i know that sounds sort of a bit glib but i i i think it's about having people who are it's partly about trusting people i think you've got to have trust and in the end in number 10 functions if people trust each other so i trusted the senior civil servants i thought they were there to try and help us deliver what we were delivering Mm. i think they trusted me because they knew i wanted to work with them you know so i think i think it's about trust i think it's about having people who know they're there to work for the government and to work for the prime minister regardless of whether you're on the political side or the civil service side and i think we 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 did. We were all like that, really. Um, I think. I think we were fortunate. And I don't know how you function without this. We were really clear overall what we were trying to do as a government. You know, we knew the framework of what we were trying to do, and I think that probably made it easier for both the special advisors and for the civil service. Because in a sense, if you know very clearly the framework, then you can start to assess policies against that. Um, and yes, there were you know, I can remember Jeremy and various other people pushing harder on on some aspects of policy and me saying, oh hang on, we'll never get that, you know, I don't think so. And for, but that that's that was just a healthy conversation. But um, I mean we used to function with Tony used to write a very long, well sometimes very short actually, but anyway, a Sunday note. Um, but in those days, of course, it was typed an email to us. And um it wasn't you know it wasn't whatsapping or whatever it, but you got this note and you kind of th- thought oh i'm point fifteen. that's not too bad or oh no there's loads of me there today you know um and you sort of waited for it you waited for the phone call to tell you it was coming and and then we had a monday morning meeting that he chaired and that was the number 10 sort of senior team monday morning meeting and that absolutely had civil servants as well as as well as political um advisors and political office because actually that was the team you know that was the team and it was a mixture of what's happening today what's happening this week what's happening next month where are we going on some of the big big issues you know um yeah so i think i think it it, i think it comes down to people being suitable and capable enough for the roles all ways around, actually and respecting each other
0: and what's so interesting is you and obviously Tony Blair were there for such a long period of time, mm. but again, we haven't really witnessed no. since. So there's quite a lot of, um, you know, there's many years where you can reflect and develop and, yes. Uh, yes. And, and learn and grow. Yes. What's, how did you see that from him in his mm. role as prime minister? How did he grow into that? Well,
1: I mean, I role. think that's a really interesting question. I think one of the really hard things is you go in, of course, or oh, well, we did in certainly 97, you know, uh, uh, this massive majority, but but politically really inexperienced or government wise, really inexperienced. We've been in opposition forever. I mean, not, you know, I think we had about one, two ministers in somewhere who'd done something. So, I mean, we were very naive in a way. Um, and you go in with quite a lot of baggage. You go in with, that's a bit of a rude way to say about things, the, the, the first cabinet, but you end up, you are given the first cabinet because they've been the, the elected, in our case, shadow cabinet. And you go in with, in our case also, quite a quite a very tight manifesto, quite unambitious in some ways, but with you know the dividing lines and all the rest of it. And I think it probably, I think it probably took a couple of years really to realize Some of the big things that that later came to dominate the government and i'm not particularly thinking about foreign policy although obviously with all prime ministers it ends up taking taking more time Um, but i'm thinking but actually even with foreign policy i suppose we hadn't expected that Kosovo and Sierra Leone would happen in that way and yet because of the clarity i think about the shape of the or the the the, sort of the, the the reason for the government the 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 mission for the government to be like they became quite obvious decisions in a way um but I th- i'm thinking particularly if i think about education and health in truth it was quite easy to go in and think well we're going to spend some more money because they've been starved and we're going to undo some of the stuff we don't like i think it took two years plus before we started to think well hang on this is not we're not really improving, we're not, certainly not improving standards or quality in the way we want to. And there was that slight feeling that you were pulling a lever and not much happened. So great policy could be written, but it didn't translate. Um, so it was really from about the year 2000, I think, that there was much, much more focus on both structural change within within the civil service. So for instance, bringing in the delivery unit and, and and trying to find ways of of doing the delivery side of government, but also being uh, much more, um, much braver, I guess, really, and much more thoughtful about about policy change, about reform within within mm-hmm. health and education. That it took money, but it also took reform, um, and that was quite a big shift. And it it did take us some time to to come to that position.
0: And from your from your perspective and your role, I would imagine that over the years you get to know the parliamentary party better yeah, yeah. they start yeah. respecting you more you know you probably yeah. have more clout I knew I you. mean that
1: was quite because i had done the role in opposition um and I'd also been very heavily involved actually in trying to get lots more women MPs so mm. I knew them really well oh not all of them but I knew a lot of them really well um and I knew I suppose I mean because I I've worked for the Labour Party you see, so I've been director of elections and campaigns so actually, the parliamentary party I knew quite well, really. Okay. Um, I, 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 I probably knew them a lot better than, a lot, than most people in the office, I guess. So that was, that was less of an issue. It's, it's more, how do you make sure that you, how do you make sure that you are hearing from and feeding back and seeing the people it's important to talk to, not to push you off the course you're trying to do, but to adapt it so that it's understandable, um, is deliverable on the ground, so I mean, I think Tony was quite clever at he always chose a a, a PPS who was not exactly who was very loyal to him but not of his politics. It was important to get some other you know another feedback loop in in a sense and I certainly for my first period in number ten I shared I shared the office with 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 the PPS and that was really useful because you just got a very good a very good feel of of what was coming as as, as issues and and who need to be need to be seen so we were very we were very, very tight about the diary. We we were really clear that there were political sections of the di- diary that were pretty well sacrosanct, and I think it was really important. So yeah. sometimes you'd see, um, you know, a single MP. Sometimes you'd see marginal seats who had a particular issue, or you know, it, all sorts of different groups. But I think that was I think that was really important. So after after PMQs, there was a, you know there was quite a long slot over in the Commons, and I think I think that was that was a very good investment. I think.
0: Do you have any favourite memories from your time in Downing Street?
1: I do have one. I do have one very sort of very crazy memory, actually. Well, I've got two actually. Um, one relate is relating to the to um, Sinn Fein when they when we started when we were moving ahead on the on the peace process and they started to come they started to come in for, for meetings in Number Ten, which of course was just kind of un- it was such a shock to walk out of your office and see people sitting there that you'd kind of heard of and seen on the media and we had this great messenger sort of who among other things made the tea called Vera and Vera was staunch sort of you know Irish Irish Catholic and she, she used to come and see them you know I remember Jerry hasn't sitting there and people and she's going would say, now I don't want any nonsense from you today with my boy, which was which was which was Tony. So she used to sort of she, she oh, you got to behave yourself," which was great. So so that and that was very that was the sort of warm side of Number Ten that people don't know about. I think that it is actually a strange, it is a place that does unite around people when there's, when there's trash, sort of stresses, I think, and, and looks after each other. So, so she was great. And I remember that, you know, looking out of the window and they were on roller skates in the garden with the kids. And you just thought, oh my goodness, you know, um, who was on roller be? skates? Uh, the, the, um, Sinn Féin and, the, and, and Tony's kids were on roller skates in the garden together. So that was, so that was great. What, um, why, why were they on roller skates? I think they were waiting for a meeting and so they'd gone into the garden and and. I mean, mm. is this okay? Well, I suppose it must be. So, you know, it was just- it Probably was just, a
0: good sign. Yeah.
1: <laughs> a good sign. Yeah, the combination <laughs> of mirror and the skates. Um, so I think that was that was interesting. And then I can remember the sort of a madness of, of the sort of tension around um, Iraq and sort of the, the, you know, the, the desire we had for obvious reasons to make sure that, that Labour MPs were supporting the position um, as well as Conservatives at that point. And you know Tony. I, I mean, everybody was seeing lots and lots of MPs. The whole cabinet were involved. It was they were they were they were marvellous. But um, I can remember Tony seeing somebody really late. It was a ten o'clock vote, I think it was. But it was late anyway. It was towards the end of of the of the final people and and suddenly say well I want to talk I think I'm going to talk to my mum before I vote and Tony's saying right where is she I turned out she was dead at which point we just thought right actually it's time to draw a line and we're not sure we're going to get this one over or not I can't even remember how that MP voted but you just sort of thought that we we've had enough <laughs> this <is> game up <laughs> You know. so you you remember some you remember some crazy times you know as well as some I mean obviously I, I I also remember that kind of very famous pink dawn of, you know, the Royal Festival Hall in 1997, which was just a sort of incredible moment where you thought, gosh, we have actually done it and the country is willing, willing this to work. Um, so, yeah. yeah, lots of, lots of, lots of very tough times, but lots of very good times.
0: Then, of course, you were made a Baroness mm-hmm. and um, entered the House of Lords, and, mm-hmm. um, be interesting to hear a bit more about what what that's like, what that journey was like, and also I know you had a ministerial role uh, at some mm-hmm. point,
1: mm-hmm. Um,
0: minister for women and equalities. So yeah, what, what give us a glimpse into? Yeah, yeah. Into
1: I, mean, that. I, I mean, I mean, I I actually went to in 2001, but then ended up I only did this uh, relatively short short period as a minister, and then got sucked back into into number ten. Um, it was really I mean it was interesting. I mean that was interesting, and actually that's quite a good. Example, I think, of how it's possible to work when there's clarity about a political strategy. I suppose so. I was doing I was doing the women and equalities job, which I'd always been I'd always been involved in that sort of broad area of policy. And I can remember going to a political conference, and I went to the Stonewall reception, Stonewall fringe meeting. I turned out no, we did that point have done that before? Which is kind of, I just seemed a natural. It seemed an obvious thing to do to me, and and so. Fairly quickly, I came to the conclusion that at that point you could really work with Stonewall and we still had section 28. It's like, I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it, to think about it, but mm. but the focus then was, will you get rid of it? And actually I had in my local Labour Party, two really good um, friends, two, 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 two gay guys, one of whom had been married for many, many years. And when he died, his partner lost the flat you know and it was just it was just devastating they'd been together for oh, i don't know years years and yet he had no rights to anything and this other guy's family took everything back and it was really i was really shocked by it and so you know long way of saying that i sort of did the brokering on on civil partnerships and i didn't really think very much about it because it was so obvious to me that that was something as a government that we would support because it was fair and it was Kind of reasonable, and it was modern, and I thought it's ahead of where people are, but it's not so far ahead of where people are that we're going to ha- that people are going to really kick off. We couldn't then have done gay marriage. Interesting, it would have been a step too far, uh, and I was really pleased when David Cameron did it. But we couldn't have done it back in 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 two thousand and one too. And but I didn't. Suddenly there was all these headlines saying I can remember. The express saying you know gay marriage i remember alistair saying to him, what are you doing but you know? I mean, it was it was it was so obvious to me that that was something that would be supported by the government because i knew that tony was broadly socially liberal that it would where it would be where he was i knew he would support it now actually if you are sufficiently clear about the sort of shape of a government it makes it much easier to operate because you can you you have a, a delegated not exactly power, but a space where you can operate. You're not constantly checking back in, does this fit and doesn't it? So I think that was really interesting actually, because it was just, it just demonstrated that there was clarity about what we were trying to do. Um, anyway, I got sucked back in and I've only really been heavily involved in the House of Lords since 2005. Um, and I know it's a funny place and I know people, you know, can say all sorts of things about it. And I'm completely against the current sort of packing of numbers because we were trying to reduce our numbers. But I find it in, in many ways a good place to, to operate because, you, for example, in a select, if you have a select committee in the House of Lords, you can't have a minority position which forces you to focus on where you can build consensus and where you can agree. Um, and I suppose the areas I've been involved in most in the Lords have been broadly about, you know, education, research and um health to an extent Um, there are a group of people around the chamber of different parties and non-cross crossbenchers and you you know who you are and you know you broadly work together you know so actually in many ways i find it a, a good place to 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 do politics if you like in the broader sense and just a really good place to talk to people and and find ways through problems and that, you know, there's always people there to talk to. So I've, I've bizarrely missed it since, you know, February, March this year, I haven't been at all. And, and I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't go just as, for me, it wasn't so much sitting in the chamber. It was really sitting in select committees or talking to people almost over a cup of tea, but really just finding like-minded people that you could, that you could work with. So, you know, I mean, somebody got Ken Baker over the years. I've talked to loads about is technology colleges and all you know I mean there are just people around around the, the the chamber and beyond that that you you know that you've got common interests with and I think that's I think that's really good uh, I mean uh, of course the stuff that is changing but it's 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 an interesting place nevertheless to yeah. meet good people
0: yeah with, with real depth and yeah. expertise right yeah. which is often I think un- yeah. forgotten or not
1: yes um, I think that's right underestimated
0: yeah um so what um what were the areas I know you're passionate about social mobility and education are those things that you championed whilst being in the lords
1: yeah I mean I mean I um I mean obviously after after I left um number 10 I I got I sort of got re-involved in education so I started to work with with some education charities um I was chair of Ofsted for for Mm. for a period as well. Um, And that was when Michael Wilshaw was Duke Inspector. And there we were able, I mean, that was quite interesting because we were able to realize that you can use a regulator and inspectorate to provide a level of focus on indeed on social mobility. So for example, Michael did this really, really rather clever thing of looking at, of saying a school couldn't be outstanding unless it was delivering for its poorest pupils, which was a real wake up call because there were schools that superficially were fantastic but, you know, were disastrous if you were from a poorer background. Uh, and by shining the light on all the students in a school and using data properly, I think he was able to have real impact um, because, you know, I, for me, I'm not, interested, I'm not interested in equality being about just leveling everything out. I want people to be raised and to sort of have the opportunities. And, um, and that was a, a really interesting way of shining a light and saying, if you really you know it's brilliant that you're doing brilliant fantastically with all those with all those students but what about that section there um and i think there's always ways that you can that you can do that so i mean i was um i chaired a select committee on digital skills and again we looked we looked um in a lot of depth there at what was working in different parts of the country and what wasn't so for instance you know fe colleges in london broadly speaking were not really delivering and yet you would come across an occasional really really excellent um college in i can remember there was one that worked incredibly closely with siemens there was another one that was working really really well and probably still is doing so on wind power so often where you've got where you've got a really strong industrial connection um then you can really make something happen and you can you can you can change the opportunities in an area and uh so i you know in different ways frankly i've, I've continued to do that i, I did a commission for Harringgate council again looking at stem in the east of the borough in particular where the levels of achievement were much much lower than the west of the borough and then um highgate school were really were really keen on on cooperating so again it was trying to put people together who wanted to help move things forward
0: and so what um if you were still chair of ofsted what so what was what would your thinking be about current policy (laughs) um
1: well that's a very good question actually i mean i i think I mean, i'm very alarmed by the gap that i think has is, has has widened again i mean i <clears throat> there's always been a gap but the best chance up to now of closing the gap has been trying to improve standards in schools around the country and there still was a, you know frankly things had really turned around well in london but not necessarily in everywhere else um from what i can see read and and, and looking at at information i've been given i mean the, the gap throughout covid particularly i think pre Summer um, has been colossal, is colossal, um, and it's not just it's not just it's not just the obvious thing of where is the you know where are the high number of cases and therefore where are children being sent home. It's also the ability of teachers. If you've got young teachers who t- who are technologically savvy, they're much more confident about doing online online teaching. Um, if you've got kids at home where there's one computer, is that? But if there's one computer and it's shared by a parent and a couple of siblings, best one in the world. They've not been able to do much online education. Yeah. Um, and I've certainly talked to to teachers who've, oh, you know, tell you really pretty awful stories of of students who really did want to learn and were trying to learn, but they were working on a, on a phone. You know, so what they, they didn't have a tablet. They want, they had a phone and they were trying to uh, work on their phone. And their sibling was asleep in the same bedroom. I mean, it's just. So when you hear those stories, it's always completely, it, I don't know, it may, I find it incredibly motivating, I suppose, in terms of trying to trying to reduce that unfairness because so many of those young people have got so much potential, um, but if we leave it too late, it is, we, we're not a country that's ever been very good at giving people second opportunities. And uh, I, actually, I heard Desert Island Disc with Jeremy Farrar, I thought it was fascinating. He failed his, or basically failed his A-levels and was making this point about, you know we've got to give people a second chance and we're not we've never really been very good at that and we've got to find a way I think of making sure that that generation that school generation if you like we don't forget that they've missed out on a lot because we can level the playing fields and say we'll change the exams it doesn't actually compensate for the fact they've not been taught and they've missed a period where it's not even knowledge it's also about learning how to learn I think um, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm heading at Cambridge College now and I'm acutely aware that there's, there are there are students who come and in fact we found last year who for, for, for absolutely not their, you know, not, nothing to do with their fault if you like, just were disadvantaged in quite a range of ways. Um, or were just really worried because there was a grandparent at home who was really unwell and they were, you know, they, there's all sorts of, hidden vulnerabilities I think that people have so I think we've got to be we've got to really think about this generation um, and 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 recognize that we may have to do things you know we may have to do things next year but we may have to do things in five and ten years time to make sure that they've got a fair chance.
0: Another very interesting role that you've done and as I said at the start there are many. (laughs) (laughs) Great. is that you were on the olympic delivery authority board mm-hmm. and um i know there's a story to be told there so yeah
1: yeah i was yeah. gonna ask
0: you about that yeah, yeah.
1: no i think that was really interesting when I, mean, I did the full six years on that um that was the first sort of public body i did after number 10 and that was a great board it was a really really interesting board so oh you know the, uh, nick sorota was on and he was obviously focused on the arts and you know it, it was just such a it was just such an interesting group of people. I remember it was um, the guy from, from, from the mayor's office who stayed on with both mayors. So was there when Livingstone was mayor and was there when Johnson was mayor. So I mean, that was also really good. So it was a, fa- it was a fantastic board and, and in the end chaired by John Armit who now chairs the nat- National Infrastructure Commission. And I think the reason it was really interesting, and I think there's real lessons for this when we look at how to rebuild the country going forward really. Um, I think we we came together as a board, thinking all the time about how does this fit in East London. The job was the Olympics to transform East London, rather than it just being the Olympics. Very important though it is, but to be about sporting a uh, 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 sporting success and and follow through from that, and that indeed was important. So as we as we invested and as we planned the site, it was always thinking about. So what's going to come afterwards, which of these, which of these structures are going to stay for the long term and how can they be altered if they are staying? So it serves a wider group of people. So somebody said to me that the swimming pool is now the most used swimming pool in the country or something because it was slightly redesigned. So it was brilliant for swimming lessons. Um, Some of the other stuff has been taken down and taken away, but the planning of the park, we literally sat in board meetings thinking about wildflowers and it was lovely. I went back about a year ago and I sort of thought, Alison's flowers because we have this great director of development who was who who really wanted it to be a very vibrant relaxed open park Um, and it's the largest new park you know it's been for 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 a long time but the other big lesson I think that I draw from it is that the first and everybody now says oh that must have been fantastic what a brilliant thing to be involved in and indeed it was but the first 18 months was absolute hell really because you know, it was this terrible site in East London, deep scepticism generally, can we pull this off, what on earth are people doing this for, um, and I can remember we went on our first coach tour as a board around the site, and there was absolute silence when we got off because we were so horrified by what we'd taken on, because this was a site that was full of munitions from the war, tar, shopping trolleys in filthy rivers and canals, huge pylons, I mean it was just it was the sort of wasteland in East London, actually. And we spent a huge amount of money, well over a billion, well over a billion, putting the pylons underground, doing these huge tunnels and putting the utilities underground. And I'm not sure any developer really would do that. You know, in a sense, that takes the government to say, okay, we're gonna make this work. And some of this is going to be kind of really heavy lifting until we can start to show progress. But you have mm-hmm. to do all of that. If, if the money hadn't gone in to clean the site up, then you couldn't have done everything else. Um, so, so sometimes, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I think is 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 interesting about about Boris Johnson, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens post COVID. Is is I think a level of ambition for significant infrastructure change, which I think is is really essential. And I do think unless government gets behind that, it's very hard to make it happen. So. Um, So I think that was really interesting. And and just this constant focus really on what's the legacy, what's the legacy. Uh, And a group of people, I mean, some of the key people on the executive side who were great had actually done the Manchester Commonwealth Games. So I think they'd learnt quite a lot in East Manchester and some of the, and in fact, some of the board members in fact have been involved in Commonwealth Games. So they brought that experience good and, I mean, initially quite difficult experience and then in the end successful. Um, They'd learnt a lot before they came, I think. but it was so. It, it was it, it was really interesting, um, and of course, my you know my my very good friend who sadly died, Tessa Jowell, was was instrumental in, in in that. And in fact, she was. I, I mean, I can remember her going in, and because because everybody was kind of slightly nervous about about this as a decision, and I remember she went in to see Tony, and said to him, "Well, I'm very disappointed in you," and he said. I've been told off by Tessa, she's really not pleased with me. I think I think we're going to have to back it, you know. She goes, I'll, I'll have to have her back in kind of thing. And he effect- effectively said to Tessa, if you can persuade John Prescott, then we'll go with it. And then of course everybody, and she did. And, and, and so everybody then got incredibly on board, but it was that very Tessa, oh you really are letting me down (laughs) there was was actually a thing that really that really moved it it wasn't any great drama or cabinet conversation it was actually tessa so yeah yeah Yeah.
0: agency agency yeah Yeah. Yeah. so what place and object would you say have impacted your your thinking
1: i think place i think place probably probably Still the Liverpool waterfront. I mean, I was born in Liverpool, a bit outside Liverpool, went to school in Liverpool. I haven't lived there for many years, but have had family still there over many years. And I mean Liverpool can be an edgy place, but I like the I like the vibrancy of it and I like the I like the fact that creativity is sort of leading regeneration, actually. Um, and I suppose in a really simple way as well. I just love water. I think maybe growing up, growing up as a child in Liverpool where, you know, in holidays you went on the ferry over to New Brighton um, has left me somewhat obsessed. And I, you know, I feel very starved if I'm not either near a river or a coastline. Um, so there's something very, very connected, I think for me about about water. So about literally walking along the River Mersey or, or going on the ferry, uh, but also the the energy of the city. Uh, and the fact it's gone through very tough times, But has come through and has found a way um, of 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 moving forward. And actually, to be fair, you know, the first person who, in a way, put put their commitment in was Michael Hessent- Hesseltine. I mean, the Garden City, the Garden what's it called? Garden Festival. Um, I've got relatives live live there. I mean, that that area was transformed, and it was the first it was the first piece of regeneration actually. And he he really put the time in. You know, you can't do it from Whitehall. I think one of the problems we have as a country still is too much is, is driven from Whitehall by not just by politicians and by the civil service and one of the things that always impressed me is that he got on the train and he he got on the train time and time and time again and was there a lot um, mm. and in a funny way I saw exactly the same with Andrew Donnis when he was starting the academy schools he would get he would go you know he literally would go up to I remember him going up to a school in Preston that was struggling he'd get on the or he'd go on the train he'd go and sort it out himself now you can't do too much of that as a minister but doing some of it actually builds a level of trust and commitment and people are and people then pull together properly you yeah. can't direct all of that from Whitehall
0: yeah and what about the object
1: object is a bit of a soppy one really because object it's probably not it's it's probably not driven me but it's important to me I've got I've got the most beautiful large rose creamy rose that I've got in a very very large pot that was actually the last the last proper present from particularly my dad I mean probably my parents too but my mum wasn't well at that point and it's always come with me so most recently when I moved, you know, I, I kind of said to the removal people, that is coming with us. And if we have to leave some of that, well, so be it. We can, you know, if we have to get another table, we can get another table, but that rose is coming with me. And um, and uh, it, I have got, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I am not ai am not ai do not do heavy lifting gardening, but gardens, gardens and green space and, green, and trees and herbs in particular, are terribly important to me. So um, I think, it represents for me something that I guess came primarily from my dad which is sort of a, a love of, of gardens and an open air and walking um, but more widely was shared as being shared across across my family really and certainly if I think about my sister she's 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 much the same so it must have come from somewhere so I, I said my rose I think.
0: Great so I'll finish off with some very quick fire questions mm. very short quick fire questions um, the first is who is your favorite non-labor politician?
1: Gosh, I don't know about current, but the person I've in some ways thoroughly enjoyed spending time with it goes back to the House of Lords, actually, who is Lord Griffiths, who was, um, and he'd be very surprised probably to hear me say that, but, but we were on the Science and Technology Select Committee together. And he was Mrs. Thatcher's um, head of policy. And we just had really good fun for three years on the Science and Technology Select Committee, because although we came, <laughs> you know, from a different political background and with different politics, we often thoroughly agreed. And in fact, because we were we were most interested in the policy implications of the science that we were looking at, whereas a lot of other people wanted to talk about the science. And we both almost always ended up by saying, well, I don't think you'd ever get that through the treasury. So it was very funny to, to work with somebody who'd had similar experience, albeit probably 20 years earlier, but but we just had a lot in common when we were thinking about how do you, how does government move things forward? So. i mean there's lots of politicians i mean i'm not you know i'm a labor person but i've I've, i'm not hugely partisan i respect people who who want to change things and i mean you know to be blunt one of the things that's really got to got to change is that for some of these big issues that need altering we've got to build cross-party consensus or or it doesn't happen so but he's the one that's always good been good fun to be in with.
0: and um what's the best advice you've ever been given
1: Mm. um
0: or advice that you would pass on
1: yeah yeah um I think and some people would say I do this too quickly I think take decisions I think it's really frustrating being environments where people don't take decisions and actually yeah it was advice given to me but if if something is you think 80% good enough uh, then support the person taking the decision because then they will learn how to take decisions. And you can spend time afterwards saying it could have been a little bit different, but back them. Um, and don't, you know, that there are only so many strategy papers that can be written. In the end, you have to take decisions. Otherwise, nothing moves forward. So I think consider things, yes, listen to people, but in the end, take decisions.
0: And finally, are there any people you think I should really interview or who you would like to hear from on on this podcast?
1: Mm. I think Louise Casey would be interesting Mm. because she has worked for all you know she's worked for for governments of all different colors and indeed in the voluntary sector and has has done some work in other countries as well and I think I think her take on what works and what doesn't would be really interesting because, in a sense, she's somebody who wasn't in the start as a civil servant but sort of became one. But is also impatient to get change. So she'd be she'd be. I'm looking forward to, to having she's, she's she's joining the House of Lords as Crossbench, and she'll be she will be an interesting asset, I think.
0: Absolutely, that's a great answer. Thank you so much for joining.
1: What were you thinking? Not at all. It's been fun. Nice to see you.
0: I hope you enjoyed that. She certainly has a great wealth of experience and must have seen some amazing things whilst working in Downing Street for nearly a decade. Now, I am planning the podcast for 2021 and would love to hear from you who you would like to hear from. So please tweet me at Laura Round and use the hashtag WhatWereYouThinking or email me at podcast at bigtent.org.uk with the names of the people you would like to hear on this podcast. And don't forget to sign up to the Big Tent using the code podcast for a great discount. Thank you, and till the next one.